Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Bhutang Dhammang Sanggang Anutrang Pajayang Namasami was telling David and Matthew yesterday, we were practicing the request for a Dhamma talk, and I was telling them how my first request went. Not only did I forget the words, but I started saying words that weren't really Pali. And I felt that heat that, that can often come with fear and I've done something wrong. I think it, it happened actually a few times. Fortunately, as a monastic, it's helpful that, to be able to watch, watch that experience of fear. And for myself, in looking over my my whole life actually living as a human being there's fear has been such a driving force it's been something that has always been there as a um i wouldn't quite describe it as a friend but it's been there as an accompaniment nonetheless and so encountering the dhamma was was quite helpful in terms of examining how how to really deal with fear how to put it into perspective and ultimately what I didn't expect before discovering the Dhamma was that fear was something that I would actually need to not only live with, but invite into my experience so that it wasn't something that I would try to create conditions that I needed to in order to not experience a certain level of fear. And so watching that tendency, because it's been so very strong, to try to get the conditions right so that fear doesn't arise has been quite an interesting part of my practice. And I've often noticed that when it arises, if it's, it tends to be something that is often a creation that I'm making in the future, something that I'm dreading or I think is about to take place. And it's, it comes from that assuming sense of mind that it's going to be like this. Therefore, I won't be able to handle it when it's going to be like that. And so that I've found that one of the main places that it comes up is just in dealing with other human beings. And mostly, I would say the Buddha described it quite well, describing the worldly winds. So praise and blame, honor and disrepute, and gain and loss, and happiness and unhappiness. And it seems that in, in reciting that list, it's very obvious that most of us have no interest in experiencing blame, loss, unhappiness, and disrepute. And that their opposites are actually what we're more accustomed to seeking or to finding comfortable. When someone praises us, or we have a good reputation, or just happiness. Happiness seems to be a thing that is what many of us are striving to, to experience. If we're always trying to gain access to sort of these senses, the positive qualities of the worldly winds, then we're setting up a condition for ourselves to always be in opposition to the negatives that occur for us. And so when they do occur, then we're often stuck in a state of, well, I'm not okay with that. Praise me as much as you want, but get away from me if you're going to blame me. So that, that there tends to be a lot of suffering if we're caught in that seeking uh, around the worldly winds and avoiding those that are quite negative. And so this is, you know, this is an obvious thing. I don't need to really to point this out so much. But it's interesting that even though it's so obvious, in my own experience, my behavior can sort of circle around these worldly winds in such a way that it seems almost amazing. Like that the mind's habits can actually move in their directions, even though time and time again it's been sort of seen as so obvious that they don't ever really result in any long-lasting security or refuge. So as, as a monk, this can come up quite obviously. Like when I first became a monk, I just thought, 
you know, you enter a monastery and it's some sort of ethereal, celestial realm and where people are kind to each other and no one gets irked by your idiosyncrasies. Well, before I became a monk, that was very obvious. It was the wrong, very much the wrong idea of what a monastery was like. In fact, because of our practice and our focus on, on what it is that we're doing, actually these things get magnified even more. So the experience of them can feel quite, quite intense sometimes. So I remember before I was an Anagarka, I was coming to the monastery, and due to my, my cultural and familial upbringing, I always had an interest in food and also sensual pleasure. And so and this is, again, something I've been working with for a long time. But I remember that when I was a guest at Abayagiri, I came up there, and, and I was asking this Thai man who was often visiting the monastery, about these recipes that, you know, he was he would make these certain things. And, of course, some people don't work with recipes. They just, you know, they've been so accustomed to cooking, they don't need to. But his response to me was was that I'll never be a monk because monks aren't interested in, in recipes. And then he gave me an example of other Anagarikos who uh, became a close friend of mine. He said, see, he never asked me about recipes. And he'll be a monk, i.e. much more superior than you. And so this came up, and, and just to kind of watch this sense of, this shouldn't be happening in a monastery. People don't treat other people this way. That was the first time I, I had come up to a Bayagiri. And the, one of the important qualities when we are blamed for something or criticized is, is actually to move away from the tendency to run away from the criticism and to talk ourselves out of it and to say, well, how is he right? You know, what is he actually talking about? Is there, is there any wisdom? Even when others are talking about us and there's a version in their how it is that they're speaking, still we, can, we have the potential to learn from it, from these experiences of negativity. And so much of it is about positing a self, an identity where I'm not a person who is worthy of this criticism or I'm not a person who does this or does that. And often that's, that's where a lot of the heat arises, I find, is around issues of blame or criticism. I tend to see that whenever I look at it very clearly, and I'm not stuck in, in the habit of denial around it, which of course comes up almost invariably every, every time that there's some sort of criticism or blame, then there's a sense of trying to work with, okay, well, this, what's going on? You know, what, where is there some truth in what's actually being said here? Am I um, someone who you know is worthy of, of this type of criticism? And so it's been it's been very interesting to look at that because then when I can can see that indeed I am worthy of it, then there's there's a strange sort of relief and release that comes from not having to fight it anymore, not having to say, okay, you know, that's not who I am. I'm a good person, and they don't know what they're talking about. And so what then comes out of that, ironically, by accepting something like blame or criticism and the, the fear that goes around it is, is a sense of confidence. Okay, well, I guess it's really not that big of a deal. You know, if this is true about me, then what's the real problem? Where is it? Where am I running from? And so then in, in accepting that, then it's, it's really possible to grow from that point to see like, well, is this really something that is skillful and is, is a quality that I want to encourage in myself? You know, so for example, as I was talking, like something like sensuality, seeing that there might be a value towards the senses, towards seeing something or, or hearing something, tasting something that we like, something we've gained. And if I can see that, that that's, that's really true for me, that, that I, was, I was seeking some sensual experience, then I can really examine the skillfulness of that seeking and whether I'm someone who really wants to, to be doing that. And in that case, it's, you know, it's nice to have these robes in this form because the, the obvious thing is I don't even have to look very, very hard. You know, it's, it's pretty easy, but living in a monastery, and uh, especially living in a monastery, there's, it can be 
sometimes a bit difficult because the standard in a monastery is quite is quite high. The level is quite high. The expectation is quite high. And so, what I found in that is that then fear can be even more projected, and especially fear around blame and having not doing the right thing, doing something incorrectly, having offended someone. That can be very much a prominent part of my practice because of my past habits. Then. Therefore, working with the mind in that way around fear of blame or criticism or loss of reputation can come up so easily because the bar is set so high. And then we have, you know, as monks, for example, we have these patty mocha rules that are the, you know, you have 227 rules. And then sometimes I'll notice uh, that I'll, I'll say, yeah, and then there's about 10,000 derivatives of those rules. I'm following 10,000 rules and breaking a lot of them. So there can be a sense of like, how do you work with that in the mind? Because it's not so easy when there are so many little things that could be easily broken or, or not seen clearly. And then, oh, I did it again. But that sense of the mind creating that habit around, I did it again, or I'm such a bad person, or when am I ever going to get it right? Sort of an unforgiving sensibility. It's so painful that it's, it's quite helpful to actually bring up and you know, sort of say out loud because it's 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 so much based on this sense of self and you know who I am what I think of myself and and these essentially like the comic formations around around our thoughts and what they're what they're continually creating for ourselves and so it's hard to tease apart the impersonal element of it because it feels so solid it can feel so real no this is who I am this is what I am this is how I behave or don't behave or should behave or shouldn't behave and then through our practice, there can be uh, a sense of, of understanding that there's a release from, from being caught in that so strongly. Because if we're able to stay with an object of concentration, for example, then the delusion, the sort of the covering over of our experience with delusion of all these habits that we have and these uh, creations within our own mind, it takes a break for a moment and we get a sense of, oh, wait a minute, there's, I don't have to actually move in that direction. And then there can be this sense of relief and happiness that arises out of that. So as Lumpur Sumedho says, ignorance complicates everything. And it's really true when you don't know what's happening, when there's not a clear understanding of what's actually happening in our experience, then it just gets very complicated very quickly. And the Buddha describes it, the mind, I believe he said there's no metaphor that he could come up with that would describe how quickly the mind actually moves. It can essentially jump, and we, and it's so hard to, to see it. So it's good to actually forgive ourselves and, and not, not make such a big deal out of having to live with this, these habits of, of really what it is to be a human being. It's very rare to be born the Dalai Lama. Even before the Dalai Lama was the Dalai Lama, it's rare to be born an arahant. That actually doesn't happen, which is nice. So for the majority of us who are practicing, it's, it's not that we're yeah, born into this world without greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's a far few number of beings, as I understand it, who are born as stream enterers or people who diminish these defilements uh, quite substantially. So it's like, in a sense, it's just right whatever our experiences are, are just right. You know, it's, it's actually good when we have these difficulties to reflect on the fact that, oh, right, this is samsara. If, if it wasn't like this, then it wouldn't be samsara. And then I don't really have any sense of how to work with the Buddha's teachings because he really, he really did say that the conditioned phenomena is where we're going to find a lot of suffering. 
But the conundrum and the difficulty with uh, working with a lot of negative qualities that arise in our practice is that there is this habit that most of us tend to have to want to run away from difficult experiences. And as I've found it in my own practice, that's an area where I can work with daily, probably till the day I die, because there's such a strong tendency to to want to run away. So, for example, the the Buddha talks about going into awe-inspiring and fear-inspiring places like jungle thicket, someplace where we'd be exposed to like a tiger, terrible sounds, very difficult experiences that we would have to sit through. And that's where where we can really learn from our own experiences. And so the, the Thai Ajans, group Ajans, they actually encourage this in monks' practices and in, in the ladies' practices. They encourage Buddhist practitioners to go out and find very fearful places that they could work in so that they could really come up very close to to this emotion and confront it. And ironically, in a lot of these situations, the mind, for many monks have described this in these situations, not many monks, but those monks who've, who've been in these situations, describe that the mind actually goes right into a very concentrated state because uh, that the fear is so illustrated, it's so powerful, that there's really nowhere else the mind can hide. It, there's no choice in the matter. And so it's... Even if, if something like an absorption state doesn't come up in that sort of situation, even the fact that there isn't anywhere else to move for the mind, it, it can't get distracted from the fear or move away from it because, you know, if a tiger's circling around you, <laughs> there's not much time for distraction. It's just sort of, there it is, there's the experience. So in that way, something, something around fear can be quite helpful. But we don't have to, at the same time, we have to be careful because we don't need to necessarily look for trouble that often in our practice. In certain ways it can be not so helpful to expose our things that are that that are unskillful. So let's say you, you're at home and you decide, oh, you know, I'll just expose myself to watching this this movie and then and another movie and another movie. I mean and so it something like that would not be necessarily a positive way to work with, with something or to put oneself in harm's way. For example using drugs or alcohol or something like that, and then saying to ourselves, I'm just going to experience the Dhamma and see what that's like in this circumstance. So in those ways, there's, you know, of course, these are pretty obvious ways. We don't want to necessarily look for trouble. Getting into a conflict with somebody else, that's uh, another means that one could avoid because those are going to happen anyway. We don't have to actually make them happen. We're going to get into conflict. We're going to get perturbed and say something wrong and um, be offended by somebody else and offend others. So um, we can use those experiences, though, and, and kind of benefit from them. So essentially, the, uh, the main part of the, the practice I'm trying to illustrate here is all of you have probably heard before, and that is that we can expose ourselves to what it is that's most difficult and treat those experiences as friendly, as something that we can invite in and say, okay, it's okay to be with this, to be with this experience. I'm not sure if, if anyone's heard this story before, but I was at a large meditation center. It was called, it's called Spirit Rock, and I was with Ajahn Suchito, and he was sitting next to me, and I was attending the retreat with him, and, and I was the sort of retreat support crew there, which is quite relieving because you can just, as a monk, sit down and say, I don't have to give any talk. I just get to listen. And within a couple of days, he said, can you lead the chanting? Okay, and then, you know, later he, he started asking for more, but luckily no Dhamma talks, so I was very happy with that. Because for me, it was like 150 people. I knew that I couldn't figure it out. And I think at one point I said to him, because he was having group interviews, I said, you know, I think it's a little complicated, the way I've been hearing it, how the, where people are supposed to go, and it's, it's, it's kind of confusing 
for the participants in the retreat, like which room they're supposed to go in, what's being used. And we should probably just tell them pretty directly, it's with Ayamed Anandi, it's room B, and whatever it was. He said, oh, okay. Can you make that announcement? Sure, sure, right. <laughs> this is how it happens. You <laughs> ask her something and you get it. So, uh, so we're sitting there, I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to him, and I'm in a chair, and he's on, on like a stage with the sitting cross-legged, and he turns to me and he says, oh, can you make that announcement we were talking about? And uh, I was sitting next to another monk who's a friend of mine, Tom Pesolo, and I look at him and I, I pause. Uh, sure. And for some reason I stand up, and Tom Pesolo told me later, he said, at that moment he said, I knew something was wrong. And I get up in front of 150 people, and um, I've been... You know, albeit during this whole time, it's been like three, four days, just keeping my eyes totally down, not looking at anyone and being pretty quiet and centered, at least in front of everyone. And, and I get up and all of a sudden my, my heart is in the middle of my throat and it's beating at, feels like about 300 beats a minute. And my breathing becomes extremely, um, it's hard to describe. It was like I, I couldn't breathe enough to actually get any oxygen in because the heart was kind of you know stuck there so uh i couldn't yeah I, I found that it was hard to breathe so you can imagine in this situation it was a bit hard to uh, get out what i wanted to say which was coming out in fits and spurts uh and of course made things more confusing around the conference rooms and so i'm up there and i'm not and everyone everyone in the whole room is looking at me and i'm uh i'm just trying to get through it and uh and cannot get out more than a few words her breath, and then I can't even breathe. So eventually, I just I decide I just have to start coughing and pretend I have to sit down. So I did that, and now it's very comical, but it was so painful when it first occurred, when that occurred. And then I, I kind of sit down and finish the announcement, and I look over at Ajahn Suchito, and he looks at me and goes, and that was it. <laughs> and uh, I think I even later asked him, like, did you have any idea what was going on? He's like, no. He didn't know anything was happening. Of course, I got more news from Pesolo, who I said, what, did, you, uh, did, did you sense anything was wrong? He said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you didn't, you didn't quite sound so comfortable up there. But it's interesting because, because, what it, what it, because then after that, it's, oh dear, what, what is, when is this going to happen again? And what am I going to do? And how am I going to possibly live with myself in this kind of experience? Because it really hadn't happened so much. It had happened a couple of times at the monastery, and it, it, it hadn't happened at all in my life that I could recall. And then after, maybe it was like after two or three years of being a monk, it happened, you know, once or twice, where I was, I was, um, it was always reciting Pali alone. So that was during the invitation to the devas. And all of a sudden, I'm, I can't breathe. And in those moments, I, I asked people, did you hear anything? I mean, I, I felt like I was going to die. They said, no, I actually enjoyed it. I said, well, I didn't enjoy it. So, so then, then there was kind of a fear around how is it possible I can go on, you know, because I was, I was like, how am I going to give a Dhamma talk? How am I going to actually speak in front of people? And to, to confront this and just, and just know that it's going to be okay was one method. Another one was uh, quite funny. I had gotten so afraid of this happening because it was so recent to, to when it had happened. I was supposed to just read uh, out of a book. So I, uh, in front of 
uh, everyone in the monastery. My friend Tan Caspo, who's Chinese, and his, his English is, is actually quite good, but he's quite shy around using it. He decided to play a recording. And so I thought, well, all right, good. I can do that. So I actually recorded myself in my kuti reading something because uh, I was so afraid of having a panic attack or whatever it was uh, that I was afraid of. And so I'm sitting in the, in the room and I said, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say this without a lot of fear and anxiety coming up. So I've made a recording and I'm just going to play that of the reading that, that uh, I intended to. And I reached down to press the recorder on and Ajahn Pasano said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I look up and he says, don't take yourself so seriously. <laughs> just read. And so I thought, unfortunately, all right, fine, you're going to get your just, you know, your just desserts, Ajahn. I'm going to die right now in front of everybody. <laughs> Literally, I'm going to have a heart attack and it's going to be your fault. So I start reading and nothing happens. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know, let's get some panic going. But it didn't happen. It's been interesting working with that because it, it hasn't happened really like that so much. But also one of the interests I came, that came out of that is, is what would it be like to just be okay with that experience? To be totally, just completely fall apart in front of 5, 10, 20, 100 people, whatever it would be. And I wouldn't look forward to that experience, but it does show another way of kind of really how to work with, as I was mentioning before, the worldly winds. Because if we're, if we're okay with experiencing you know, blame and, and criticism and loss and disrepute, then if we're seeing those as actual learning experiences, then even something that later on we can probably laugh about or you know, remind our friends, oh, remember that one time? In the moment, it's the last thing we want to we wanna have occur for ourselves, but it can be such a rich experience to go through these these times in our lives where uh, we would just rather not. We'd rather just kind of stay the same and not have any major changes take place that are potentially so uh, negative in the moment. So one of the, one of the other ways that this uh, can come up for me, I've, I've seen, and not in a, in a sort of extreme fear way, but it's, it's in relating to teachers. There's such a, a sense of not wanting to get it wrong, uh, wanting to appear good, and that one has really learned something. And I think teachers pick up on that pretty quickly. And they might even choose to illustrate that so that, you know, you're not, you're not going to get caught up in a, a situation of trying to, to always meet with conditions of, of seeing a, be, being seen as, as a sort of the impressive person. I remember uh, with Ajahn Pasana one time, I had asked a pretty kind of just silly question in front of a group. And I was an anagaric at the time, and I was using two kind of, uh, cushions. There were very thin cushions at Abhaigiri, these kind of um, blue cushions. They don't provide much of anything, but uh, when we'd sit on this platform up on the higher part of the mountain there, uh, it was a bit uncomfortable, just one cushion, so I would use two. And one of the monks who was attuned to the sort of the Thai way of doing things said, you know, you should not use two of those with, um, with the monks because the monks are, are sitting on one, the Ajahn's sitting on one, and it's based on the layers. So if you have two, you're actually sitting higher than the Ajahn. And in my mind, I thought, well, that's unfair. You know, I don't want to have to experience discomfort. I'm not trying to offend anybody. So I, we were sitting uh, just before the meal in front of a large group of lady who had just offered the meal. A bunch of people had brought up food. And uh, so they were kind of 
inspired and happy. And, and so we're sitting there, and I thought to myself, well, now's a good time to ask a question because I don't want to annoy Ajahn at tea. I'll just ask it right now. This is a good time. So I say, Ajahn, can I ask you a question around the, uh, etiquette in the monastery? And he said, sure. And I hadn't gotten to know Ajahn Pasano very well. And I said, I was told that um, we shouldn't really sit higher than the, the senior monk and that if we're using two layers, it's kind of offensive and it's not really being respectful to, to a senior monk by sitting higher than him. In my innocent kind of way, I just, there's nothing wrong with that question. And he said, well, if people are talking about those kind of things, then they're not really, they're not really paying attention to, to the practice or something like that. And in my mind, I thought, you didn't answer the question. I want, I want the question answered. Can I sit on two questions or not? Uh, I didn't say that. But I just said, okay, I'll take that as your answer. And then he called me in after the meal. And there was um, a few of my fellow Anagarkas were sitting there. Ajahn Armo was sitting next to him. And he said, Chunda, come over here for a second. I said, was it Chunda? No, it must have been... I think it was, I think it was, uh, no, it was just Anagarkali at that time. I wasn't a novice. So I came over and, and he said, do you understand, what did you think I meant when I answered that question to you? And then I said, well, Ajahn, you meant that if people are, are talking about, well, that's right, he used the word complication. He said that if people are talking about those things, they're making life much more complicated for themselves than it needs to be. So I said, well, you were illustrating the fact that getting involved in, Discussions like that is just complicated and unnecessary. And then he let me have it. So I thought Ajahn Pasno was like this teddy bear. You know, you could kind of tell him, you know, what what needs to be done or what's wrong, and he'll go, oh, okay, yeah, right, good. Thanks for your perspective, and I'll I'll do this and that, and and that was not. He's he's an an incredibly good monk, and a uh, but he's also a very good teacher and trainer of monks, and he's not a teddy bear. So he, he decided that in that moment he would show me that he's not a teddy bear. And this was uh, excellent for me because I could, in that moment, very much hear what he had to say because fear definitely arose. And he, just, he basically said to me very sternly that I was seeking comfort and in a monastery uh, that is not why we've, we've come to, uh, to be uh, in a place like this. And he said that's, a, that's something he's observed in my behavior before. And then he said... And not only that, my question and the timing of my question was quite inappropriate uh, in front of a group of people who were very inspired and, and happy to have been giving Donna at the time. He didn't say it as I just said it. He said it in a way that was awe and fear inspiring. And then since I had been training already with Ajahn Amaro for quite a while, I looked, because Ajahn Pasano had been gone for a year, so I'd been just training with Ajahn Amaro, who was a very different character, and I look up at Ajahn Amaro aren't you going to defend me and he just looks at me he just looks down at me and turns away <laughs> and uh, and that's when I knew like okay don't don't mess with Ajahn Pasano and be very careful of the questions you ask and you know and I have to really be aware of how I'm seeking comfort and that that really illustrated for me um, and, and thirdly of course as I started that what I was saying is you know trying to to seek praise from the teacher to seek uh a way of, of um, looking good in front of the teacher. All of these things were just illustrated in that one, which probably two-minute dialogue. And so it's it's quite helpful in a in a monastery to be able to have these reflections and also to have have a teacher that that is willing to to speak up and and let us know like, hey, you're you're missing the point here. 
you really need to kind of uh, change the way you're looking at things because it's not going to move you in the right direction. And so in that way, of course, it's not coming from any sense of anger or self-righteousness on the teacher's part. It's more like, okay, how can I help this student progress? And in some students, the teacher you know, knows that if they just breathe, they're going to fall over. So he doesn't want to really necessarily be so strong with how he, he might teach them. Other, other students might be a bit thick-headed and need a little bit more encouragement. What was really interesting for me hearing this the first time three months ago was what Ajahn Dick said. He came here, and amazingly enough, I'd never heard any monk say this before. And he said that Ajahn Ungta Mahabua, he died about four years ago. He was one of the more famous arahants of Thailand, who was one of the last... Uh, monks. I don't think he's still the last monk, but he's one of the last monks who trained under Ajahn Mun, who started, sort of rekindled the Thai forest tradition in Thailand. Ajahn Dick was saying how in the monastery, Ajahn Mun could be very fierce. Ajahn Mahabua could be very fierce. You could get what's called the hammer from Ajahn uh, Mahabua when a monk was in particularly not, not behaving in a, well, in a way that was conducive towards his own practice or inspiring for others. But what was fascinating was what he said was that it was the monks who were uh, who got the hammer the most from Ajahn Mahabua who were doing the best. And the ones who were treated softly and what appeared to be kindly and with sort of kid gloves who were, who were doing quite poorly. And he said something along the lines of, if you were seen as being treated really well by Ajahn Mahabua, then that was considered a bad thing. That was considered something that, uh-oh, you know, this monk's not in a good place right now, or he's not going to stay for very long, or, or it doesn't seem like he's going to be able to maintain his status for some reason or another. You know, might disrobe because he's not, not interested anymore or whatever. So that, that was quite surprising to me. Of course, it made me feel quite happy because I can get the hammer a lot. But I was, I was very surprised to hear that. And the irony, he said, is that in front of the, the guests in the monastery and the lady who came, what appeared to be the really good monks were those who were being praised by Ajahn Mahabua and, and looked so kindly upon. And, and it was those monks who he was kind of, you know, really giving a hard time to who were doing well. But from the lady's perspective, is exactly the opposite. The monks who were doing poorly were the ones who were getting criticized and, you know, basically told, you know, do this, do that, or however it was that he was uh, instructing them. And that the ones who were, who were treated so well appeared like, oh, he must really like those, those monks. You know, he must really think those monks are, are something. And uh, how interesting of a perception it is that the, the monks would hold the exact opposite perception. Like, you don't want to be the guy who's like, being treated really well because that, that means something, something quite different. So it's, it's a, it can be quite a, a different culture. The, the Buddhist teachings are trying to encourage us to follow, especially with something like praise and blame. It's continually to try to remind ourselves that they're both imposters, that no matter how much praise feels good, as, as we set ourselves up for being in a condition where that's okay, where that's what we want, blame is not, then we're just setting ourselves up for suffering. So if it's more equanimity, sort of that middle path through the two and seeing like, well, they're both actually the same. If I'm following either one, I'm stuck, and therefore I'm going to suffer. That's the way that, that we can see things, no matter how difficult it might be. Because something like, like gain and loss, it, it just seems almost impossible. How could you see that 
the gaining something that you really wanted or losing something that you really wanted are to be treated in the same way because it just seems so so much that the mind is is set up to to deal with it in one particular way when when we gain something we're happy and when we lose something we're upset that's why the the buddha called them loka dhammas so they're they're worldly dhammas they're worldly phenomena worldly conditions because they're the way of the world the way that samsara is sort of moving in the direction of and so as we're trying to move away from that what comes out of that it can be sometimes quite painful that's sort of how we're taught about the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha because it's it's supposed to be painful it's supposed to be difficult if our practice was was really easy it might be that we're not actually pushing ourselves enough to really see that that uh, we can surpass certain elements of suffering that we might be sort of hiding from or or trying to get away from and so in in my example with the last example with Ajahn Pasano although it was quite a difficult experience to go through i remember saying later, later to some of the other monks i almost peed in my pants and you know i was so i was just so afraid but it was something that that i could recall and bring up even something now with gratitude that in the moment i would have i would have never thought i'd say i'm grateful for for a, a fierce teaching but i can remember now like because of really his his generosity and kindness and looking after me how important he was trying to stress something that i wasn't seeing clearly about myself and how easy it might have been for him to to not do that he said oh, it's not worth it that's where it can really kind of gain from our practice trying to work with a lot of these these negative qualities that we experience in life and and see how they can they can be our friends and often that we also don't need to compound the matter by creating a self that is is righteous around them that doesn't need to experience these things that that can like the sense of he shouldn't have said that to me when that occurs it's it's unfortunately it, it's the exact opposite of dhamma it's going towards the world because even if somebody's saying something that's that's not one of the best ways to illustrate how much we run away from blame is when somebody blames us for something that we absolutely are not blameworthy for so you know that this other guy actually did it and you're being blamed for it the obvious thing to do is to say well actually uh, he he did that but what's even more interesting to look at is when we say okay i'm really sorry yeah, i shouldn't have done that or yeah you that's that wouldn't be exactly the way but okay i can see how that's not the thing to do whatever it was so you shouldn't say that you've done something you haven't but but in the, in the sense of of actually experiencing what it's like to be with injustice and that so, sort of self-righteous feeling that's so strong that can be our tiger in the forest you know being with that that experience of that where the mind is saying i have to absolutely say something right now there's no way that i can keep this in and then you do and so much confidence comes out of that because if we're able to actually receive loss and blame unhappiness and be okay with it no matter how difficult it is then we can see how how much easier it gets to not have to just follow our emotions that are are leading us into needing to to do exactly the opposite to you know run away from those difficult experiences or to blame the blamer or or whatever it might be so these are just some words of encouragement and uh, if there's anything i've said that's been helpful please take it with you and otherwise if there are other things that have not been useful then please feel free to leave them behind uh,